Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Every other week, we strive to research and break down complex issues facing our society. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinions versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and biases will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone the tools and foundational understanding of topics to go about discussing and addressing them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, most of the things that we talk about can get pretty heavy and they may actually even be divisive. So we try to lighten the mood and avoid doom spirals, but we still recommend getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. We're really glad that you're here with us. Welcome to our fireside. going to be talking about today. Our last episode wrapped up our series on systemic racism. To be clear, this doesn't mean that we can't or won't revisit the topic if the need arises, but for now we're going to try and shift our focus a little and discuss other issues. If you've listened to that series, first, thank you, and second, you may already know that fully disengaging from that topic isn't really possible. It intersects with so many facets of American society that some people seem to think it's a necessary part of how our culture functions. This week, we're going to discuss one of the more widely known attempts to deal with both overt and systemic racism, affirmative action. We'll be addressing its history, current implementation, how it works, if it's effective, and some arguments against it. Before we get into that, though, we'd like to take a minute to reflect on one of the most momentous things to happen this year, although that may feel very strange to say in 2020. On September 18th, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and we're not going to spend too much time here discussing the vast impact that this woman had on not only the justice system in the United States, but our culture and the very presence of women in American society. There are tons of available resources out there discussing her absolutely incredible life. So if, by chance, you are unfamiliar with that, um, I, we would recommend starting with the documentary RBG, which is available on Hulu. Uh, if books are more your thing, check out My Own Words or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I Know This To Be True, on equality, determination, and service, both of which were authored by her. It's well worth the investment of your time to learn about her and her continuous campaign for equity. Suffice it to say, if you live in the United States, you directly benefit from her lifetime of work. This holds true for women, but also, as we've said before, society is more than just one group at a time. It's it's for all of us. So may her memory be an inspiration and a blessing to all of us. We said in the beginning of this pod that we want to hear from our listeners. What do you want us to talk about? What do you want to unravel? This is one of those topics. 
one of our earliest listeners, Emerson Amaya, brought this subject up to me pretty early on. We were maybe two episodes in, and uh, he brought up affirmative action to me to ask about it. Now, this might surprise all of you, but as a super duper white guy from the Midwest, I did not know a lot about affirmative action. Uh, But I told him we'd look into it. To get some better context for this episode, I gave him a call to get his thoughts. The bulk of that call follows, but first I want to give you just a little bit of info about him. I met Emerson at the racetrack, of all places. Uh, For lack of a more descriptive term, he races motorcycles. And he's stinking good at it. He will, of course, say he's not that good whenever he hears this, but the videos pretty much prove he can pass me like I'm standing still whenever he wants, so... Not only does he race them, he wrenches on them, he buys them, he parts them out, salvages and sells them. He can not only tell you what part you need for your bike, but also what that part will cost and if you're going to be ripped off or not at that price. Using this knowledge and this passion, he built up and runs a small business, Bobblehead Motos. It supplies people with motorcycle parts and accessories. Though he may deny it, he is incredibly intelligent and possesses a business sense that my naive self will likely never be able to attain. This, combined with some help from a certain woman who shall remain nameless because I'm only slightly less scared of her than my own wife, puts food on the table, fuel in the tank, and rubber on the track for him. He's also an immigrant from El Salvador. We don't get much into his story during this interview, but I point it out here because his upbringing was filled with obstacles, and he has first-hand experience on what it's like to be in America with very few resources at your disposal. I'm incredibly grateful to have his input on this topic to help us focus in on what to talk about. So I came here when I was 10. It was supposed to be a short vacation, but, you know, we ended up staying for much, much longer. It was kind of surreal having to go to school here just because I didn't know the language. You know, not knowing absolutely anybody that goes to school with me and not knowing how anything worked. Worst part of it was just I couldn't go to my parents just because they obviously didn't know how anything worked. In school, so I was pretty much lost most of the time. So I was definitely behind the curve there. Eventually, obviously, I learned how to speak English and just learned how to get around a little bit better. Mm. But, for example, when we got to high school, like... Everybody was talking about college. You know, we didn't see it as an option just because we were so poor. But then I learned about affirmative action and uh, and how minorities are able to get in, uh, quote, unquote, easier into college. Mm-hmm. So I was like, awesome, right? That's 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 great and all. It was, uh, it was all those things like, man, white people are helping. <laughs> the U.S. government is, is awesome, right? Like, they're doing this to help us out. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, like, I would hear white friends speak about it in school, and they just thought it was very unfair because they work very hard for it, and say somebody mm-hmm. comes in, doesn't have the same grades or the same SAT score, but I can take their spot into a college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt like there was some resentment there from white students towards Latinos and blacks and just minorities overall, just 
it just started building up, I guess, with that. Um, and would you say that yeah. that perception uh, from your your white peers that kind of influenced how you viewed affirmative action, how other minorities viewed it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, at first, it was like, oh, it's all great, this side and the other, I love it. But then I did see start to see their side, and I'm like, man, you know, they're working just as hard to get into the same school and, and me just based on the color of my skin, I get to take their spot. Especially with a lot of schools on SM, uh, accepting a certain amount of students, right? Right, yeah. And then there was also that, like, I had this conversation with a friend of mine and he made a good point. It's like, it, it's just almost a mental block or, or just something mentally that just says, well, you're not good enough, so we're going to help you. So you kind of felt like it cheapened the efforts that minorities put in because it, it lowered the bar for them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as soon as you pull that out, I, you know, I started thinking about it as well that way that it's like, well, you know, we're going to help you just because you, you can't do it by yourself. Mm. So, um, so you've never taken advantage of, of an affirmative action program uh, from what I no, understand? No, it was just the whole higher education was very difficult for us. Right. Just because since my parents were, were immigrants and they didn't know how anything worked, you know, and they were making minimum wage and so we were very poor. So like right. in my mind, school, higher learning was, was never an option. Yeah. If, you know, I would have had that help from them or just, you know, been more proactive about it, which is kind of tough when you're and you when you're, when you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah, so I would have learned that there's programs and and all kinds of grants and stuff that I could have taken advantage of. So, but, yeah. So we've talked about this a little. Obviously, that's why I called you to get your opinion on this for this episode. So, what are some questions that you have about affirmative action? Some stuff that either unresolved or or some opinions that you're not sure if they're accurate. You know, the, um, what, what are some, what are your issues? <laughs> Whatever uh, those okay, are. Okay, so one thing it's like, and I know we had this conversation, wouldn't it be, uh, somewhat of a racist or policy? Not in a negative way, but it, I mean, I guess it's still racist because the only reason you get it is based on the color of your skin. Hmm. Nothing else. Mm hmm. Right. So yes, it does help, but I think morally it does, it does harm some people just thinking, well, you're not good enough, like I said earlier. Right. It kind of creates that sort of a double standard. Yeah. So personally, I think it should be more of a, a lower income just because, uh, like you spoke in your last episode, the starting line is way, way further back. Yeah, so it shouldn't be based, what you're saying is like, it shouldn't necessarily be based on immigration status or minority status, but your social, socioeconomic standing, because there are white people who struggle with the same things that you did. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I can only imagine some other parents, uh, especially if you're lower income, your parents probably didn't go to, uh, to a higher, to, to college or university. Yeah. And, they probably don't know the how to get in either, you know, or what program to take advantage of. Uh, you've spoken about taking the ACT, SAT multiple times. 
practice tests, right. this, that, and the other. So things like that, I think, would be more beneficial for lower income rather than just people of color. Right. Some sort of instead of having some sort of quota system or need to have a certain population be X to take that consideration out of it entirely. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Make that starting line at least closer to people who are wealthier, have more means. Right. Yeah, that's something I think we can definitely try to get to the bottom of, figure out how that works. If there is other programs for people in similar situations who aren't minority, you know, if there are, are things that are not called quote unquote affirmative action, but that are accessible to everyone. Uh, yeah. I, I personally wonder. Get in. Yeah. That's based on the color of the skin. This, this seems wrong to some extent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely look into like, what are the actual qualifications that are looked for in these programs? Cause I think the perception is that it is, uh, uh, strictly about the color of your skin or your minority status. And yeah, we're recording this before I've done the majority of the research on this. So that's one way I'll direct my research is, you know, is, is that really it? Is it just minorities or is there something greater? And it's just because of this more systemic issue that minorities are more likely to fall into those, uh, those pots. Um, well, I'll, I'll figure that out or I'll try yeah, to anyway. Um, and I think there's also a greater pro- uh, problem with it and, and that's that it re- creates resentment from white people towards people of color. Not only one individually, just like, well, you had, you, you had it easy. Yeah, as a group. I, I heard it. I heard it in my own life growing up, you know, John, if, if you were, you know, if you were black, you would have no trouble getting into college. That's something that was literally said to me. Good old, <laughs> good old Ozarks. So yeah, I, I can, I can, testify firsthand that uh it does it does create that resentment um yeah and then it, it builds on the racial tensions that we're living in now mm-hmm. um and everything just you know you battle it up for so long and people just like well enough is enough you know yeah and and there comes that i think that gives me a, a pretty good foundation of how to frame you know this the research that we're going to be doing and and how we're going to talk about this I think that's perfect. Thank you so much for talking with me today, for the feedback that you've given me, not only for this topic, but you've actually sent me several articles, things to read, insight on some other topics that we've talked about, and we we do appreciate that. Thank you very much. We read every single one of those. And anytime, brother. Yeah, I hope you know some of your podcasts definitely open up some people's minds. That is. I like the last. I, I like the one. The last one with uh, the bad apples analogy. You know? Oh yeah. I like that. Cool. We 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 put a lot of work into that one. Obviously, it's two hours long. It's longer than any of our others. Uh, so we definitely thank you. Thank you for that. All right. So I'll get to it. All right, brother. Talk to you soon, man. See ya. Okay. So what even is affirmative action? Uh, this quote from an article in New Yorker magazine sums it up pretty well. I think. The terrible paradox of the civil rights movement is that outlawing racial discrimination made it harder to remediate its effects. Once we amended the Constitution and passed laws to protect people of color from being treated differently in ways that were harmful to them, 
The government had trouble enacting programs that treat people of color differently in ways that might be beneficial. We took race out of the equation only to realize that if we truly wanted not just equality of opportunity for all Americans, but equality of result, we needed to put it back in. Our name for this paradox is affirmative action. Most histories of affirmative action pin its start to 1961 with the executive order 10925, which was penned by President John F. Kennedy. That executive order included a provision that government contractors quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. So the intent of this executive order was to affirm the government's commitment to equal opportunity for all qualified persons and to take positive action to strengthen efforts to realize true equal opportunity for all. However, in his book, The Pursuit of Fairness, A History of Affirmative Action, Professor Terry Anderson, who is Cornerstone Faculty Fellow of History at Texas A&M University, traces the roots of affirmative action several de decades prior to that, to the 1934 Public Works Administration under Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes, which set out to employ a fixed percentage of skilled black workers in cities with an appreciable Negro population as measured by the 1930 census. The 1941 Fair Employment Practice Committee promoted employment free of discrimination, establishing the foundation for Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which led to the development of affirmative action programs. This language, however, leads to a really natural problem. What does free of discrimination actually mean? And this is a problem with laws of all varieties. What's the intent of the people who wrote it? Free of discrimination is hard to codify in concrete terms. Then-Senator Hubert Humphrey, a supporter of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, argued that ending racial discrimination in employment did not mean the imposition of quotas, and the statute barred preferential treatment based on race. Yet, in 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson supported the idea that race-neutral policies could not eradicate the effects of past discrimination built into the system, what would come to be called institutional racism or systemic racism. At a commencement address to the 1965 graduating class of Howard University, President Johnson outlined the need for programs like affirmative action, saying, You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race, and then say, You are free to compete with all the others, and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. And this is the next and the more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. We seek not just freedom, but opportunity. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability. Not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. For 
the task is to give 20 million Negroes the same chance as every other American to learn and grow, to work and share in society, to develop their abilities, physical, mental, and spiritual, and to pursue their individual happiness. To this end, equal opportunity is essential, but not enough, not enough. Men and women of all races are born with the same range of abilities. But ability is not just the product of birth. Ability is stretched or stunted by the family that you live with and the neighborhoods you live in, by the school you go to, and the poverty or the richness of your surroundings. It is the product of a hundred unseen forces playing upon the little infant, the child, and finally the man. This graduating class at Howard University... Later that year... President Johnson signed Executive Order 11246, mandating government contractors to take affirmative action in all aspects of hiring and employing minorities. As a result of this mandate, many colleges and professional schools started to recruit minority students as part of their education mission. Ultimately, this led to these institutions initiating admission policies that took race into consideration. These policies increased admission for African Americans and Hispanics at predominantly white institutions. In 1967, Johnson expanded coverage of affirmative action to include sex discrimination, largely as a response to the burgeoning women's movement. Sustained pressure from black urban Americans from 1965 to 1968 convinced the chief executive that the colorblind provisions of Title VII were not sufficient to get the mass of African Americans into the job market. Hence, the Labor Department adopted specific goals and timetables that employers and unions receiving federal funds had to meet in employing and promoting minorities. Now, lest this appear to be a partisan liberal effort, the Nixon administration also added to it, with the Secretary of Labor George Shultz revising Johnson's plan, establishing a flexible target range for contractors and unions related to the percentage of minority workers in the local job pool. These new goals, targets, and timetables became the standard for affirmative action programs by both the Department of Labor and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. In the 70s, a series of Supreme Court cases discarded job aptitude tests that had a disparate impact in perpetuating racial discrimination, upheld minority set-asides to eliminate the effects of past discrimination, approved voluntary race-conscious affirmative action plans adopted by private corporations, and sanctioned race as a reasonable means for recruiting a diverse student body in higher education. Under President Carter, affirmative action requirements were extended to virtually all firms, educational institutions, and state and local governments that received contracts or grants from the federal government. 
By the late 70s and early 80s, opponents began attacking affirmative action by claiming reverse racism and inflexible quotas. In the Supreme Court case, Regents of University of California v. Backey in 1978, that was the first case to question the legality of affirmative action policies in higher education. Alan Backey, a white applicant, claimed that he was wrongfully denied admission to the medical school at the University of California in order to make room for less qualified minority candidates. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the establishment or use of racial quotas in determining admission does violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. However, institutions of higher learning can still consider race as one factor among many in the admissions process. Interestingly, neither the court, the White House, nor Congress ever accepted quotas as a remedy for racial or sexual discrimination. In what might be an important and timely case study about the power of the Supreme Court, the Reagan administration's judicial appointments resulted in a change of standards applied to affirmative action plans. The court began to subject these plans to strict scrutiny, ruling that plaintiffs had to prove individual discrimination rather than rely on measures that proved group discrimination in the past, and demanded narrowly tailored remedies to meet the situation. In recent history, Proposition 209 in California prohibited quotas or other forms of preferential treatment in the name of race-free civil rights. The cumulative effect of the attacks over the past two decades have nearly killed affirmative action. The Clinton administration took serious steps to save it, and more Supreme Court decisions in the early 2000s reaffirmed that race could be considered to produce diversity if it was done with flexibility and as one of many criteria. So how exactly did or how do affirmative action policies even work? It seems kind of ill-defined, nebulous. Um, there are guidelines, and the guidelines for which organizations are subject to the regulations are pretty clear. If you employ more than 50 staff and you're selling more than $50,000 worth of products or services to the government, which includes any college or university that provides contract services, and it turns out that's a lot of colleges and universities, um, then you must develop a written affirmative action plan to ensure women and minorities are not discriminated against in your hiring practices. In addition, an official of the organization must be assigned responsibility for implementation of equal employment opportunity and the affirmative action program. Organizations that don't meet these requirements are not covered under the regulation, and they might actually take a um, they might actually take on a higher level of risk by attempting to implement diversity programs that are not overseen by the appropriate organizations. So if a company is required to create an affirmative action program, then it enjoys some level of immunity from litigation for discrimination. Not complete immunity, but more than another organization uh, that is not obligated might take on. Under an affirmative action program, the company could effectively tell potential lit litigants, don't blame us, we're just doing what the law requires. Your problem is with the federal government. Sue them. <laughs> Naturally, that has a, a deterrent effect. Even when the Reagan administration toyed with outright 
abolishment of affirmative action requirements, the National Association of Manufacturers lobbied him to leave the program alone. It was actually helping manufacturing companies do what they could not otherwise attempt. The biggest problem businesses had wasn't that they couldn't find qualified women and minorities. It was dealing with labor unions whose seniority systems overwhelmingly favored white male workers. Small businesses also resented the paperwork. (laughs) The programs and policies that are used to achieve the required end of affirmative action programs, though, aren't standardized and they kind of fall under a few broad strategy categories. And these programs might seek to correct an issue that's already known within the organization, or they could be designed to avoid potential discrimination, or sometimes they're a combination of both. So one of these, one of the affirmative action type programs would be outreach for diversity. So that means that basically companies increase their recruiting efforts in places where underrepresented groups are. They may recruit at an all-women's college job fair or place flyers in a community center frequented by minority ethnic groups. This approach is generally considered uncontroversial because it does not give any one group preferential consideration. It only ensures that all groups have equal access. So they're, they're fishing out of a very specific pond. Exactly. Another fairly uncontroversial bucket of affirmative action strategies is removing barriers to entry. So when companies use this strategy as part of their affirmative action plan, they examine hiring requirements or policies that might place an undue burden on an underrepresented group. For example, if a template job description includes that the position might require long periods of standing, a company might modify some postings to remove that requirement and that would make the position appropriate for people with disabilities that would prohibit standing. Or if there's a physical aptitude test that sets benchmarks for employment, like a firefighter, for example, a separate set of standards might be developed for men and women. Yeah, yeah. We know, we know. That's a separate (laughs) episode, okay? Moving into more controversial strategies. We have this idea of hiring goals, but definitely not quotas because Bakke made those unconstitutional in 1978. Companies using this strategy may set goals of having a certain quantity of employees from underrepresented groups within a certain timetable. This is permissible as long as their plan does not set quotas or discriminate against any other group in the process, but it's really towing the line uh, of that of that dreaded Q word there. Yeah. And then we've got the most controversial strategy grouping of all of them, plus factors. So this approach applies extra weight, if you will, to candidates from underrepresented groups so that when their qualifications are compared to others with equal qualifications, the underrepresented candidate is chosen as more favorable. I'm going to diverge into some opinion here. Okay, so on this face, this seems outright discriminatory. I'm not arguing with that at all, but we do need to keep in mind that it is actually pretty unlikely for two candidates to be 100% equal in qualification, experience, and cultural fit at any given organization. So I'm not advocating for this policy, but I think that sometimes the outcry against it is a bit disproportionate given that no two people are exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, and even if there are two people 
hypothetically out there who are exactly the same. Um, I think in our brains, we tend to sort of like imagine them applying for the same thing at the same time at the same place. And it's just like the odds of two random strangers in a population of in the U.S. 330 plus million people applying to the same location for the same position at the same time. It's just astronomically small that this is going to cause a loss of a, a position for one of them, if you will. Interestingly, that's a, that's another strange way the brain works is that a lot of people will kind of touch on this and it's something I want to kind of investigate deeper, but we have this sort of mentality of if we don't get something that we wanted, but we didn't already have, we somehow count it as a loss, even though we never had it to begin with. So you see that language a lot, like a white guy lost the job. Uh, he lost employment to somebody just because they were black, which is weird. He didn't lose anything. He never had it to begin with. Right. Especially under uh, official and documented programs like this. Um, when you're when you get down to like the hiring decisions that individual people make, that's another thing. But under these programs, the the place that you would see this policy implemented more often is in like college admissions when you're dealing with incoming freshmen with the same test scores who are equally involved at their high school and were both valedictorians of their class, right? Those are the kinds of situations in which you most often hear this plus factor situation uh, mm. argued against. So just keep that in mind going forward. All that to say, things get really messy when it comes to implementing these policies, which we covered pretty extensively here. Because of the ambiguity of the order, so much of how to proceed was left up to trial and error. But I think the most important question that we can ask is, did it work? Before we can definitively answer the question, did it work? We have to outline our measure of success here. When we ask if affirmative action worked, we're really asking, did the program reduce the amount of discrimination against underrepresented groups and increase the rates at which they were hired or accepted? This is actually something that we're pretty lucky to be in 2020 to talk about because we have 60 years worth of data to analyze and determine the answer to that. So the very short, <laughs> the too long didn't read version of this is, <laughs> yeah, affirmative action worked. There's a quote, I like it, that kind of sums it up in a tidy little package. The federal government, with the backing of the courts, weaponized the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its legislative progeny, notably the Education Amendments of 1972, home to the notorious, in the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg sense, Title IX, banning sex discrimination in federally assisted educational institutions, and forced businesses to hire women and racial minorities. Study after study suggests that the kind of diversity that sprang up in these organizations wouldn't have happened on its own. In 1981, the Reagan Labor Department commissioned a report on gains in hiring among African Americans and women. And that report found that between 1974 and 1980, the rate of minority employment in businesses that contracted with the federal government rose by 20%, and the rate of employment by women rose 15.2%. 
But in companies that didn't contract with the government, these rates were 12% and 2.2% respectively. So diversity increased where it was essentially mandated at a higher rate than where it wasn't. From a, a strictly statistical approach to analysis, affirmative action was effective in increasing minority enrollment in colleges as well. In 1965, 4.8% of undergraduate students, 1% of law students, and 2% of medical students in the country were African American. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, college enrollment rates for African Americans and Hispanics increased. Overall, from 1976 to 2008, total undergraduate fall enrollment increased for each racial and ethnic group. Um, we actually are fortunate enough, again, to have pretty specific data on this. So in that time period from 1976 to 2008, Asian Pacific Islander enrollment increased from 169,000 in 1976 to 1,118,000 in 2008, or if you like percentages, and I do, from 2 to 7% of total enrollment. Hispanic enrollment rose from 353,000 in 1976 to 2,103,000 in 2008, or from 4 to 13%. These were the two groups that actually had the fastest rates of enrollment growth, but other minority groups did as well. American Indian Alaska Native enrollment more than doubled, so increased from 70,000 to 176,000, which is not as dramatic of an increase. It's actually only from 0.8% to 1% of total enrollment. Um, still an increase, still positive, but as we've as we've seen, as we researched systemic racism and these topics, uh, the indigenous American population has some unique challenges to overcome in, uh, in our society, uh, or rather, I should say, our society has some <laughs> unique obstacles that we need to remove or address. Um, black enrollment in colleges rose from 943,000 to 2,269,000, which increased their share of overall enrollment from 10 to 14%. Interestingly, white enrollment also increased, but at the slowest rate of all of the ethnic groups. Although white enrollment rose from 7,740,000 to 10,339,000, white enrollment as a percentage of total enrollment declined from 82% in 1976 to 63% in 2008. What did I do? No, I'm just laughing at the fact that their low number is still three times the the black high number or the Hispanic high number. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just chuckling that, like, total volume. Right, as, as just, like, raw numbers. Yeah. 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 That's why I like percentages. It at least... Puts it in perspective. Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, it's still sixty-three percent, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I but know. that's okay because it's slightly closer to their actual representation of the population. Yeah, uh, we're actually almost proportional representation across all groups now that I look at it. Which is pretty um, great. That's actually not bad. 
Total graduate enrollment also increased for each racial ethnic group between 1976 and 2008. I'm not going to walk through all of the numbers. Suffice it to say, it was also a pretty dramatic improvement. Now, it's probable that affirmative action alone was not responsible for that change. As we saw when we discussed systemic racism, many of the factors that determine outcomes for any given individual or any given racial group, they're intersectional. So one change in a seemingly unrelated area might have a, a change in, in another area. So we can't say, you know, affirmative action by itself is responsible for this. But I think it, we can comfortably say that like we saw with employment, it's unlikely that that amount of growth, that amount of change would have happened without affirmative action programs. What does affirmative action look like today? Well, I mean, affirmative action programs are still in play today. Although it's interesting to note that there have been 10 states in the history of affirmative action that have banned affirmative action programs, whether in employment or education or both. Um, I think that there are seven right now that currently have active bans on affirmative action programs in education or employment. Um, but it's interesting to note that affirmative action isn't just a factor in American society today. It's a factor around the world, although probably not by exactly those names in that same spirit. So in the United States, our laws and our policies, we still don't use the Q word, right? Because it's unconstitutional. But we know that the most direct form of ensuring gender parity is a gender quota. So in systems like that, the maximum weight is given to the demographic criterion of gender, whereas the person's qualifications play a secondary role. Not no role, mind you, but it may be the first criterion used to determine candidacy. So if a particular institution has a quota of 40% women, and they've already got their 60% men, when they hire their next candidate, they're going to look at gender as that first criterion in order to fill that 40% quota. Like we said, these processes were outlawed in the United States in 1978 with the Baki case, but even today, various European countries and organizations are discussing or have already implemented plans to prescribe a fixed percentage of women in non-executive board directorships. But quotas are not the only method used to diversify. It's far from it. If we look at schools, percentage plans or quotas are literally the least employed strategy for achieving racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic diversity, with only 13% of institutions in the United States employing that particular tactic. In fact, the three most used strategies revolve around reaching out to prospective students. Those are targeted recruitment and outreach to encourage racial and ethnic minority students to apply, enhanced recruitment and additional consideration for community college transfers, and targeted recruitment and outreach to encourage low-income or first-generation students to apply. Which is kind of what we talked about earlier, where you basically go to these, these pools, these ponds of untapped resources, untapped talent, and you specifically pull the people out of that. These generally aren't problematic, because it's 
it's just pulling the talent that meet the criteria that you set out from these specific locations, these groups. Those programs, by the way, 78% of institutions do targeted outreach to racial and ethnic minorities. 76% of institutions have that additional consideration for community college transfers. And 71% of institutions uh, do the targeted recruitment for low-income and first-generation students. So a huge majority of these institutions are using these strategies primarily. Of the institutions that consider race in admissions, most use other race-conscious and race-neutral diversity strategies more often than schools who do not consider race in admissions. These schools find a blended approach to be more effective than a race-neutral strategy alone. So race-conscious and race-neutral approaches can and do coexist and are often used outside of the admissions decision. In addition to a holistic application review, some of the most widely used and effective diversity strategies at institutions that consider race include target recruitment and yield initiatives to encourage racial and ethnic minority students to apply and enroll, targeted recruitment and yield initiatives to encourage low-income and first-generation students to apply and enroll, a bridge or summer enrichment program for admitted students, something to do outside of the normal classroom semester, and targeted scholarships and aid awards for disadvantaged, that is, low socioeconomic status students. And this is something that I can speak to directly from experience because I did work in marketing for, it was a private university. Um, and so we were absolutely not subject to an affirmative action plan in any sense of the imagination. But our recruiting team did want to promote diversity among the student body. And so we did things like ensuring that when we created marketing materials, we had pictures of students of various ethnic minorities. We made sure we had pictures of women. We made sure we had pictures of students with disabilities to just give that little visual reminder that they were welcome at our university. Um, we had admissions counselors who were Latinx, who were black, who were women, so that when students applied to the university, they had an opportunity to talk to somebody representing the university that represented them. Um, I mean, they even went as far as considering pro producing recruiting materials in Spanish, which was like a huge jump for this particular very conservative university in order to, again, just remind people that they were welcome and give them the opportunity to picture themselves in this university. But at the same time, they did have all of these other initiatives for first generation college students or for disadvantaged socioeconomically college students or for students who had exceptional grades but maybe fell into one of the other two categories. There were It was a combination of strategies. And I think when we think about affirmative action, to think that this university was different in how they operated uh, would be a logical fallacy, right? I think that most universities, whether they're public, private, affirmative action plans or not, use these combinations in order to promote diversity on campus. It's really interesting that publishing their material in Spanish was going, this like a huge deal, <laughs> which is, it's almost, it's almost ubiquitous now. 
Uh, yeah. You, know, you see a lot of businesses, a lot of schools that have Spanish material, which I think is as it should be, as we've already discussed. There's no official language in the United States. There's no requirement to have things in English. Yeah. We just so happen to have sort of defaulted there as a society. Yeah, and, and there were a lot of reasons for considering Spanish as like the language they were they were thinking of branching out into. But interestingly enough, they found that they had a significant enough pool of potential students who spoke English, but their parents did not effectively read or write in English in a way that would help them apply for college. And, and in the course of, of working for that university, I learned that something like 80% of college applications are actually filled out by the parents and not by the students. I was shocked. What? I filled out all my own paperwork. Yeah. Jeez, um, mom. Thanks. Right? Like, I had to do all the hard work. Uh, but that, that potential foray into new territory was so that we, they could better serve that particular group whose parents could not effectively help them apply for college in English. So. I know. That's I know. So but it's these little things that we don't think about as like promoting diversity on campus. Such a fun little huh. segue. That's cool. Uh, I mean, it's blowing my mind. But that is kind of cool. Although, I mean, that is something that Emerson talked about in his interview was the fact that his parents didn't have familiarity with the system. They didn't have the knowledge of it um, to help him with college application. So, you know, that kind of kind of clicks with what he said is that that specific sort of outreach may have helped him may have been beneficial specifically to him and his family to have materials available in their in their first language to help guide them through that so huh i mean and and even and this is where things get a little bit frustrating right so even despite the fact that we have evidence that these kinds of programs work and even despite the fact that we have evidence that universities that are employing these plans in an effort to increase diversity in sex or in ethnic makeup or or in any other way. In 2018, the Trump administration via Attorney General Jeff Sessions retracted several official letters and memos that actually advised schools on how they could legally consider race in their admissions and other decisions. The I just letters... want to interject something. Sorry. No. I want to interject something right here. It's former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Oh, yeah. Let's, and we, uh, can, we can all just take a deep uh, breath. Former Attorney <laughs> General Jeff Sessions. I I am glad to stand corrected on that. Although, yeah. you know, I'm going to put, yeah, I'm gonna put just... my opinions in my pockets. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to keep those there for now. Yep. <laughs> These letters and memos didn't have any kind of weight of law, but they they provided interpretations of the law and offered suggestions to the schools. And this all happened in the context of Trump's administration's Justice Department threatening to sue universities over affirmative action policies. At the time, former Attorney General Sessions and the Justice Department had identified a total of 24 guidance documents that they wanted to repeal in October 2018 alone covering not only a number of affirmative action documents, but guidance on home loans and fair employment and refugees' right to work and the detention of juveniles as well. 
Oh, that frustrates me so much. I know. Um, It's so frustrating. And it's not, you know, again, it's not like these were laws or executive orders or, or legislation pertaining to these disadvantaged groups or these hard uh, areas, these, these areas that we've already talked about disparately impacting minority groups. It's just the idea of just removing any sort of guidance or any and all guidance under the guise of it being inappropriate. Right. Um, it's just, when I see stuff like that, it's kind of, that's what makes me question why certain groups think that without getting too political, it just, I'm trying, this what this is what makes me question why the right right now um, says that, you know, Republicans are better for minorities. Republicans are better for black folks when there's all of these like active measures that have been taken to sort of like on the back end disadvantage these groups again you know removing the guidance for how you can how you you can apply affirmative actions legally in your school how does that help anybody i think it goes back to like we talked about in our in our episode where we discussed the arguments against systemic racism i think it all goes back to that ideological perspective that america is a meritocracy right so of course, if America is a meritocracy, then the best society we can have is one where every person is considered on the basis of their own individual merit and not on the basis of these programs designed to create artificial merit where it doesn't exist. Mm. It's that it's that backwards idea that we are all starting from a level playing field. Yeah. Whereas affirmative action guidance acknowledges that we are not right it's i don't know frustrating to me when we have this wonderful resource at our fingertips called the internet called our libraries where where like you and i do we we go to the experts on this most of our sources especially in this one are (laughs) journals and books written by subject matter experts on this this is what they do this is what they study and again i'm not trying to convince anybody to think like i do here but the numbers seem to tell a pretty obvious story to me and i it is hard for me to see that information see those numbers and somehow think that these programs aren't, or some form of them, maybe not this exact program or these exact programs, but some form of recognizing and trying to rectify these imbalances isn't necessary in our society. It just seems so, I don't know, seems obvious to me. But I mean, I think that dovetails directly into like what arguments do people have against affirmative action programs? Right. And they all fit under basically the same umbrella Affirmative action programs are discriminatory against those who do not fall into underrepresented groups for the organization in question, right? So over the decades, many public opinion polls have shown that most Americans believe the federal government mandates that all employers have quotas to help women and minorities, which, as we've said many, many times, that's not even legal, having a quota. 
Right. So that's not how this works. Historically, this little tidbit of information will probably shock and surprise all of you listeners. <laughs> the group challenging the programs, these affirmative action programs, have historically been white men. <laughs> so, so do, the question, the question I think is fair though. Yeah. Do white men suffer as a result of affirmative action? Do we lose opportunities? Do we lose something to these programs and their implementation? And it's a really difficult question to answer. I honestly really wish I didn't have to say that. I wish I could say no, obviously not. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's hard to answer that because it's tangled up in so many other things. And we don't have a universe where affirmative action doesn't exist to compare our own universe to. It's not like right. we can see the definitive results. But for what we have been able to gather, what we have been able to study, there is very little hard evidence to prove that a minority hire almost always took place at the expense of a better qualified white person. The scholar who came up with that, he also tells us that there's no reliable data on whether men were shut out of jobs that were offered to women. I think there's this tendency to think that the affirmative action programs that are in place kind of take jobs away from white people as if there is a finite number of jobs to be handed out, right? There's only a hundred jobs and without affirmative action, you know, white people would get 80% of them or 80 jobs because they're the most qualified, but with affirmative action, they're only getting 65, right? And I don't think that's exactly accurate. This same researcher noted that White men did not go without jobs or the chance to attend college. Turned down by one place, they went someplace else. The number who were quote-unquote victimized by affirmative action, he says, is minuscule. Borrowing an illustration from Thomas Kane of the Brookings Institution, a driver looking to park who does not have a permit might feel excluded driving past an empty handicapped spot. But they usually find a place to park. Exactly. Those people eventually have found a place to go. What's interesting about this, though, is as we've seen these programs change throughout history and we've seen the response to them change, more recently, the groups challenging affirmative action policies have actually included formerly underrepresented groups. So they've included white women and Asian Americans one of the most consequential cases concerning affirmative action right now was brought by a group called the Students for Fair Admissions, and it was brought against Harvard University. Although it is interesting to note that the lawyer who brought the actual case against Harvard, his name is Edward Blum, and he is well known for uh, seeking out groups that might like him to challenge an affirmative action policy on their behalf. Uh, he is, in fact, a white man. So whether or not things have actually changed all that significantly is up for a little bit of debate here. But uh, the Students for Fair Admissions asserted four claims under Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the first claim that they make is that Harvard unlawfully holds Asian Americans to a higher standard than students of other races. 
They also claim that it engages in racial balancing in order to keep roughly the same percentages of racial groups in the student population. They claim that it uses race not as a single plus factor, but as a defining characteristic for admission. Again, when you remember back to what we were talking about, plus factors in general are pretty controversial, um, but once it's a defining characteristic, then it gets into that kind of quota, unconstitutional territory. And they also claim that it bypassed race-neutral options for campus diversity, like those that we talked about earlier that are tied to socioeconomic background. Uh, that case was ultimately decided in favor of Harvard, with the judge on the case noting that while the system wasn't perfect, it was still a fine system and it would be um, unwise for her to strike down the entire system without just recommending that it be improved. However, the case is currently in appeal, and with a Supreme Court that has grown more conservative, and may grow more conservative still, and in recent years has overturned a handful of liberal precedents from the 1970s, some of these standards that have been set could be overturned. It's interesting, that first uh, bullet point that they've kind of uh, brought here, that, they're, that Harvard's unlawfully holding Asian Americans to a higher standard, than students of other races, it kind of turns the whole uh, the model minority myth on its head. Yeah, which I mean, like, when you think about it, like I don't know if you think about the academic competition among high achieving Asian American students, I could see how it would appear that that would be the case. Yeah, uh, real quick. For people who don't know, the model minority myth is something we've brought up a couple of times, and it's this idea that there is a a right way to be a minority, and frequently the examples used for those are Asian immigrants, Asian Americans, for whatever reason, probably ties back to cultural differences and similarities between Western culture and, and Asian cultures and where they overlap that makes white people feel like uh, more comfortable around them. That's a total guess, but I, I have a feeling that might be borne out <laughs> by some yeah. data. And, and I think we should probably like do a whole episode on the model minority myth because I have heard and read some really interesting claims basically about the screening process that Asian American immigrants went through that kind of led to this perception of them as being exceptionally smart and exceptionally well-behaved and uh, far less disruptive than other minority groups in America. And I can't say for sure that those are true because I haven't done the research that would contribute to that podcast episode yet. Um, <laughs> but I would love to dive into that a little bit more and see if if that holds any water. I think, however, some of the the deepest arguments, the most resonant, the ones that actually matter, those arguments come from people that affirmative action is actually designed to benefit. Preferential treatment policies have been found to harm those who they are meant to benefit in some cases, for example, women reported less interest in a leadership position when gender alone was the decisive factor for their selection. Um, this was explained as an effect of the women's doubts about their own abilities, which 
that's what the the study said that i think what they were trying to say is when they were solely when they felt like they were only picked because they were a woman women tended to wonder whether or not they could actually do the job or if they were just filling a quota they doubted their own experience their own qualifications and I think we see that in in the interview that we played at the top of the show with Emerson. He mentions how utilizing these programs, we talk about a little bit, how utilizing these programs might come with this context, this connotation of feeling like they were less worthy of getting into a job or a school than their peers who did not use those programs, as if their, their work by itself wasn't sufficient and that feeling is understandable i can i can understand that i can put myself in those shoes but i think it's bred or born in this resentment that non-minority applicants have towards you know, women and minority applicants, these these minority groups, quote. Although it's weird to me that women are referred to as a minority group when I think they make up the majority of the population, something like 51% or somewhere in there. Right. I think I think underrepresented is probably, it's probably a, more a better accurate term for women. I think it's right. I just note, it's just as a side note, like I see minority and then women a lot. And it's, it's, interesting to me that that's a sort of phenomenon that happens it also really speaks to what minority means uh it means not white males <laughs> not necessarily actual minorities um as as the research we found showed to address those that specific concern that that feeling saying that a white person would have gotten into a specific school, for example, if not for affirmative action, giving that position to a, a, a minority applicant, it's, that's a shaky claim at best. It's the claim that's made. It's the claim that gets internalized by minority applicants, but I don't think it's accurate. I think it's a perception. Um, so yeah, at best, it's a misperception. At worst, it's just outright racism. You know, that assumption presupposes that a minority applicant isn't as qualified, isn't as accomplished, isn't as good as a white applicant. You know, if you take that thought to its logical extreme, me, white guy, saying, well, as I mentioned in that interview, I heard this growing up. You could get into college. I would have gotten that position if it weren't for affirmative action or I would have gotten that position if I were black that is really saying at its core even though you're better than the minority student they got it because they're black and that no minority applicant could possibly have been better than me right it's not that they got it on their own merit it's they got it on affirmative action which is just a toxic mindset to have and completely asinine when you think about it in those terms but I can see that being pervasive. I can see that minority populations internalizing that. 
questioning whether or not they really are good enough for a position or if they're just a token hire. While we were researching this topic, a friend of mine sent me an article that speaks to this, to this sort of conundrum, this dilemma. This, she sent me an article written by Michelle Singletary for the Washington Post. In this article, Ms. Singletary discusses when she was first hired by the Post and a revealing meeting she had when she confronted David Weiss, the editor who hired her. And she asked him if he had hired her because she was black. And he said yes. And the article goes into greater detail, and it'll be in our source notes. It's, it's well worth reading. It's part of a 10-part series, actually. But she talks about how her brain shuts off right there, you know, which naturally one would probably be like, well, wow, every doubt that I've ever had has just been verified by somebody that I, I look up to, or at least I, I should or thought I did. Um, but he then proceeded to explain to her that he also hired her because she was a woman, because she came from a low-income background, but that, most importantly, because she was a good reporter. He referenced her hours of interviewing for the position, her master's degree, the experience she gained working with uh, the Baltimore Sun. Um, in short, the totality of her experience made her an asset to the post, she wasn't hired despite the fact that she was a woman or a minority or grew up poor. It was specifically because of those reasons and many more. Her experiences gave her perspective and her editor recognized that. Yeah, she was hired because she was black. But that wasn't a problem. That was a, something that they were looking for, that perspective among the other things. It's tough to get out of this mentality of viewing these cultural differences, these things that we have as a society labeled minority as negative. Too many people tend to view that minority status, the color of your skin, your sex, your whatever, as a weakness to be overcome. When we change that perspective, when we view them as differences that help all of us, then that negative connotation falls away. The conversation around affirmative action can benefit from that tonal shift. And it must, actually, if we are really going to, as a society, grow to value our various strengths, our differences. Affirmative action is flawed, no doubt. But I think it is an earnest attempt to change that perception that minority means worse than. At its core, it, it, is to, it, it intends to get people to think about the value that our differences bring to the table. There's a quote in the article that stuck with me and that I'll share here. Miss Singletary says, as minorities, we know that some people label us as affirmative action hires, and that has a profound impact on our self-confidence. We might wonder whether we're good enough. We hear that 
white hires got their jobs because of a meritocracy. And we are made to feel as if we took unfair advantage of a system that was weighted in our favor. But the reality is that favoritism for whites is so familiar that we just take it for granted. Doors are open to the children of people in the business. And of course, there's the practice of legacy admission to Ivy League colleges, which confers even more advantages, mainly for white families. That's the end of her quote, but it is easy to view the removal of favoritism especially as a white man, (laughs) as discrimination. Because it removes power from you, from me, from that group. But if that power is unjustly earned and unjustly held onto in the first place, removing that power is not discrimination, that's equity. It's justice. As a brown-skinned woman, right? I I can really identify with Miss Singletary in in that kind of brain turn-off moment, right? We as part of American culture, we're indoctrinated to think that the best kind of growth is the ability to rise above right? Rise above the things that disadvantage you and to fight and to earn your place in whatever part of society you're trying to earn your place in. And so often the color of your skin or your sex or your socioeconomic status is presented as one of those challenges that you get to overcome. And for so long, I took so much pride in being the exception to the rule, right? Being the articulate black person, being the woman who wasn't bogged down by family responsibilities or who wasn't offended by the joke in the room, right? We, we value that so much in these more toxic parts of American culture. But I think what I've come to learn, it's been a really important shift for me, is that we forget about the importance of representation in our institutions. We forget what it means to be able to see ourselves reflected in those that we look up to. We forget the power of knowing that whatever group identity you belong to, that you have a place in education or in the workforce or in politics. I have a friend who has an adopted daughter who is black and she posts very often Um, her daughter's reaction to seeing people who look like her on TV or in a magazine or something like that. And it, it gives me the opportunity to experience that through her daughter's perspective. She's in first grade this year. Um, And it brings me back to that place of, of wondering what it must be like to see for the first time, someone who looks like you doing a really powerful thing. So while some people may have concern about disabled people or minorities or female candidates being chosen for roles that they might be, quote unquote, less qualified for, we can't ignore the fact that their experiences bring perspectives to these institutions that the objectively most qualified candidate can't. And that in and of itself is a very valuable criterion. 
I was in a conversation the other day where a white male brought up the question of whether or not it was acceptable to have chosen Senator Harris as a candidate for vice, vice president simply because she was black and a woman. Um, first, it makes the assumption that that's why she was chosen. Um, exactly. <laughs> but even if, right, let's take it to a place of even if she was chosen because she is black and a woman. I really had to think about this for a while. And I came to the conclusion that even if that's why she was chosen, that is a good enough reason to choose her. Because, no, nobody wants to be the token, right? Nobody wants to be the person who's there just to fill a, a quota, to check a box. Everybody wants to be valued for what they can bring to the table. But sometimes the most valuable thing that we can bring to the table is the diversity of experience and perspective that we have. Maybe the most valuable thing that Senator Harris, who is a very experienced lawyer and in a very experienced politician, maybe the most valuable thing that she can bring to the table is the perspective of a black woman in the United States. Maybe that's the consideration and the experience that needs to enter the conversation. I don't know. So No, I think you're absolutely right. I'm think of I mean just think of this if we are going to operate in weird, isolated bubbles, if there were a quota, right? Going back to 1960, whatever. Right. And every business and every college and every board was required to have X number of each minority on or in there or hired. Even if it was strictly because of a quota, how different would America be having benefited from 80 years of this perspective being involved in our decision-making, in our education, in the things that, that happen in the United States? Yeah. I, I think perhaps if that had been the case, we would see that this divide that we have right now wouldn't exist because it might have started from a forced diversity, but that forced diversity means that at least we are getting diverse opinions in our decision-making. Yeah. It's luckily though, and to be very clear, that is not what happened when we have people hired on or in these colleges accepted to school it's because of their merit and as much as i disagree with the idea of a meritocracy being something we should strive for or its efficacy or how pure it really is it doesn't remove the fact that as we've seen it's affirmative action doesn't just take into consideration race it's the totality of the package and these people do work hard. They do have incredible resumes. They do have incredible curriculum vitae. They do have all of the requisite boxes checked for the positions they're in and have a different color skin or overcame some serious problems in their life caused by something out of their control along the way. I think that's pretty cool. Agreed. 
Agreed. If we want to live in a meritocracy, it's about time that all of the various facets of us are considered merit. Right. You can't claim that that's what you should strive for and then claim that it's not applied to certain people without looking at the data. And I, I don't think the data bears that out at all. Yeah. Experience is valuable. Experience mm. is merit. And I feel like we're about ready for some good news. Yes, I think we are. But before we get to good news, uh, well, some personal good news for us. We're on Amazon now, Amazon Podcast. Mm. You can find us there. Super excited. That claim we made, yeah, that claim we made in like episode one that you can listen to us on any podcasting platform right? that you want. I think it's finally true. We're getting <laughs> closer and closer true. and closer. I don't so think we're close. waiting for any more approvals. So. Oh, man. So that's exciting. If you are an Amazon listener, find us there. We would greatly appreciate it. That will help them know as a platform that we are valuable also. Um, and speaking of value, if you would, if you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to. That also allows for reviews. We know that some of them don't. Um, so we do appreciate those of you who go out of your way to leave us a review. If you would like an easy way to do that on our Facebook page, which is just Fireside Breakdowns, pretty easy to search on Facebook, you'll find a link that will take you to a handy dandy app that will help you leave us a review on whatever platforms are most relevant to you. We would greatly appreciate that. We really and would, please. finally, if you would like to talk to us and none of those seem like good options to you, send us an email. Our email is just firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. And we would love to talk to you. Perhaps you have a topic on your mind that you would like for us to help you break down. Perhaps you have a strong opinion about something that we have said, both positive and negative. We promise that we are open to that feedback. And we would love it Absolutely. if you would share it with us. Yes, please. We do want to hear from you. Obviously, as this episode should demonstrate, yes, we do listen to you and we do want to uh, address the topics that you want us to address. Because while we have many, a laundry list, we really think that getting to what you want is the best way to help all of us. Is that it? Are we good, ready for good news? I'm ready for some good news. Yes. Um, I guess it's it's actually kind of bittersweet news because it does still... We I think we find it appropriate since we opened with a moment talking about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We should close with some news about her. This week, Justice Ginsburg became the first woman to ever lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. And the first uh, Jew as well, I believe. Oh, that's also very cool. Mm -hmm. She joins 33 men who have also received this honor, including the recently passed John Lewis and Elijah Cummings, who was the first African-American lawmaker to receive the honor. Even in her death, she's smashing boundaries for women. And for that, we are very grateful. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to us. We will be back in two weeks with another breakdown until then, take care of yourself. <laughs>